Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you all. All right. So, yeah, today I would like to chat about um, concentration and insight. Um, shamatha, vipassana. And as I was going through, just kind of preparing, I wanted to come up with some, I don't know, new and lively, you know, pieces of information. But, <laughs> you know, as I was th- like going through it, I, uh, you know, just thinking about how beautiful just the basics are and especially when it comes to uh, these these core practices and and the longer that i go on my path the more i honor and respect and just kind of falling into the the basics more more and more and kind of away from you know wanting new exciting information because the new exciting information is actually it actually comes from from the practice, from the inside, you know, there's so much uh, craving, especially on my end of kind of new information coming from the outside. Um, but at, at a certain point, um, we actually we actually don't don't need that. We have enough instruction, and that we can start turning inward and and really getting that wisdom from from within. And it could also be, I mean, an addiction is maybe a strong word, but just a really strong habit of like, that's when we're, we're going to find the information. We're going to find the information from outer um, circumstances. And, and there's not enough reliance on, on finding it within. So, yeah, so really understanding uh, the, the basic tools that we need and then moving towards towards this actual practice. I remember a story of the Buddha where this, this older man came to the Buddha and said, you know, Buddha, I'm, I'm new and I haven't, haven't really started on, on the path and I'm older. What do I do? Like, like I kind of a, saying like he needed to play catch up, you know, in, in a way. And the Buddha said, oh, you know, it's, it's actually pretty simple. And he's like, first you want to, you want to contemplate and the basic philosophies of why are you going to practice this meditation and why are you going to do it? So he talked a little bit about dukkha and suffering and the reality of suffering. So he can get, get a clear view um, on where he was going and why, and along with it, like right motivation, right intention. And then, you know, he moved right into, um, the meditation techniques of concentration and and insight he said this is basically it right and we can we can go from there and of course adding in this kindness principle which really relates of course to to mindfulness itself and concentration and insight um compassion is innate you know within those so so it's very simple it's very simple and uh, on, on an intellectual aspect. And then of course, in practice, it's very, very, very deep. 
So um, also I thought I'd leave a little extra time today for uh, Q&A. So if we're talking about our meditation practice, sometimes it's really nice you know, just to ask questions about your own practice, any clarification um, on your own practice uh, of concentration and, and insight, any obstacles, uh, anything that's coming up for you. So I thought that might be nice um, as well. Yeah, so, so, so starting off with concentration, usually we, we, we talk about this first, um, you know, although you know, as we unpack it, we see they're really intertwined. Concentration also, you know, this term in Pali, samatha, in Sanskrit, shamatha, so they kind of add an H in there in Sanskrit, shamatha. You'll notice that the Theravada schools usually use samatha to describe this practice, the Pali. And then the Mahayana, like Tibetan style, shamatha. And then the Tibetans have my favorite word, because this practice is translated as tranquility, you know, this samatha, shamatha, tranquility. In Tibetan, their word for tranquility is shine, which means calm, abiding, which is my favorite kind of interpretation of this style of practice, calm, abiding. And so concentration, um, the, the biggest difference between concentration, pure concentration practice, and Vipassana is, a, is the goal. The goal of the concentration tranquility practice is just that tranquility to calm the mind, to still the mind. That's it, just to calm the mind and still the mind. So if we look at it just by definition, calming the mind and stilling the mind, that sounds really nice, but it doesn't have any, anything to do with, with insight which is uh, the Vipassana piece. And therefore it doesn't have the opportunity to necessarily relieve us from suffering. So to understand the true nature of reality through insight uh, comes along with it, this relief of, of, of suffering, right? So just calming the mind by itself um, doesn't have that, that opportunity. So this is a really big, the distinction between the two. So as we unpack this a, a little bit further, we will really see that technique wise in, in a lot of instances, they could actually be exactly the same. Um, the same technique, depending on the object that you focus on. So if we're, if we're just concerned with, with calming the mind, just with the concentration piece, we could pick something outside of the organic environment. Right, so you can pick something artificial. So we could, we could generate something artificial in the mind. We could visualize something. It could be a mantra. It could be a picture of some kind, and we could meditate on, focus the mind on that artificial something that's fabricated in the mind. So it's not real, something fabricated, and yet it gives us a really good focus for the mind. Maybe it's something blissful, something that we really like to focus on. And the mind is, is, has an opportunity to collect and become still. This is a great skill to have as we move into Vipassana. <clears throat> but again, it doesn't lead to any insight necessarily. But it can, and this is why um, it's open to a lot of discussion. Um, so there's a lot of debate <clears throat> just to perform 
this type of concentration, there has to be knowing of the mind. So this cognitive knowing piece is, is very particular to Vipassana, like when this quote unquote knower shows up, right? The, the, um, the knower of what we're doing, the knower of what's existing, what's in front of us. So we are awake and aware, but to be, to actually have a still mind and to kind of direct the mind into um, kind of more single pointed awareness, we do need that aspect to, to show up. <clears throat> but by intention, we could just simply direct the mind rested on, on something, an object, and not really gather anything else from that. And again, that object could be an, an artificial um, something, right? Now, when we turn towards um, insight, you know, the Pali word Vipassana translated as the insight, we're looking at a few things in, in particular, and these are the three marks of existence. So we're looking at insight into, into dukkha, anatta, and impermanence. And these are big topics. I'm not gonna go into them. I'm not gonna go into them in detail. These are really big topics, but they're the, the very foundation that we could notice. And in a way, very quickly, when we're paying attention to anything organic, so anything organic, anything that's arising naturally, we could obviously use the breath, which is one of the first things that we move into. We notice that the breath um, is impermanent right? And breath is coming and going. We notice that um, when we're looking into uh, the, the breath and we're looking to anything organic because of its impermanence and because it's shifting, um, it's unsatisfactory if we wish for it to be a certain way, right? Because of that shifting, because of that changing. So it's unsatisfactory in a way that it's not reliable or sustainable form of you know, contentment, we can't rely on it, it's shifting and changing. Then the third piece is the empty nature of things that we're looking in, we want to gain insight into the, into the empty nature of things. And in particular, the empty nature, which is not a permanent fixed aspect of self. And these are really antidotes too, to a non-stable mind. So when we really understand these, and even philosophically, you know, this is what the Buddha was talking about with that older man saying, you know, you got to understand a few of these things first and then move into stabilizing the mind. These are antidotes to a scattered mind, right? So even when we're practice, practicing concentration, we could use things like, you know, not me, not mine. So this is a common term like when we're, when we're contemplating uh, non-self, non-permanent non fixed self, like I can't find, you know, Casey, I can't point to Casey, I can't point in here and find Casey's right here, right here, right here, you know, I can't really find the permanent fixed self. And so when the mind has desire and craving, or maybe it has aversion, ill will, it's pushing things away, it's, it's wanting things, so the mind's distracted, you know, because of this craving, you know, I could remember impermanence. I could remember, okay, whatever I want is shifting and changing. Um, whatever I want, it's, it's kind of slipping through my fingers. So it's unsatisfactory by nature. And also 
it's, it's not me. If somebody says something to me that I didn't really particularly like, it's not me, it's not personal. Or if it's something that I, that I want and something was maybe taken away from me, it's not mine. There's no permanent fixed me that, that was harmed or could, could have things or have things taken away, right? These are merely labeled as such. So these insights are, are, are antidotes to a non-stable mind. And also the stability of mind allows us to access the insights because now we're holding firm in the mind, whatever we're looking at, like the breath or the body or the four foundations of mindfulness, right? The, the, the body, the feeling tones, Vedna, the, the body sensations, the mental factors, and then, then all phenomena, like the mental factors being like thoughts, you know, concepts, all, these, all of these things. So because we work on the stability of mind, we're able to, to gain a better insight. But the hold is just like a, just like a scientist kind of holding in, in picture what we want to look at. We want to look at the nature of things. So we're gaining insight. And again, all along the way, these insights of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and, and empty of self-existence from its own side, things are, are not self-existing. We need to add things to them for them to exist in the way that, they, that we think they do. By experiential understanding of these things, it leads to better focus. Because focus, concentration comes from releasing, releasing the following of, of thoughts, right? So the, these two are working, working together all of the time. And an important reminder when we're talking about concentration, and many of you that have you know, seen your students been meditating a while, you know, so it's, again, all review. But very important to remember to exchange, I think it's beneficial to exchange the, the word concentration for stability because concentration does not mean narrow. It doesn't mean narrow at all. Um, it, it just means stable. So the mind is collected in one place. And so this is very important when we get to uncovering the nature of self and um, we move into more of the anatta or non-self um, uh, aspect of, of practice. And this is particularly what we're paying attention to. So um, in, in the teachings, when we're looking more towards this empty, emptiness of self, we want to pay attention to the, the knower. So I, I touch on this briefly, and this is both in the you know, Theravada tradition and, and really emphasizing the Mahayana tradition, which is minding the mind. So, and, and, in, and specifically the, the knower. So that which knows. Um, let me see, I think I wrote a little, maybe I, I saw something, hold on one second. Yeah, maybe not. Okay, that's okay. So um, I, I just want to touch upon this briefly because um, just kind of going from 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 one piece, with, which being 
which would be looking at an artificial fabricated object in just pure concentration, pure shamatha, you're just trying to collect the mind. The ultimate insight is to know the, the nature of, of, of self. Um, and so the ultimate insight would be to mind the mind, to, to mind pure awareness, pure consciousness. So it would be like on, on two ends and end of the spectrum, right? Uh, one is completely artificial. And then one is, is um, the complete true nature. And what I mean by that, like in the middle there is the objects arising in mind, right? And they could even be organic objects. So we have artificial objects generated by the mind. We have organic objects arising. It could be the, the breath. It could be a chair in the room. It could be all of these things that are you know, existing. Those are objects that are witnessed by the mind. And then there's the actual true nature of, of mind itself. And so eventually, this is the ultimate insight is to, is to mind uh, the mind and, and see the empty nature of, of that. And that is really the, really the root of the, the end of suffering because then we understand um, that there's nothing really to, to cling to, right, um, experientially. So. Uh, so that that's it. That those two, you know, in a, in a nutshell. But there's these really specific kind of uh, little details I want to go over quickly, and then maybe open it up um, for questions. Um, but one, you know, really big aspect, which is again emphasized in you know all traditions, which is the informal piece of the practice. A lot of times when we when we talk about shamatha, vipassana, it's like meditation, everyone thinks of themselves on the cushion and, you know, in a cave or on retreat or something like that, some kind of hardcore idea of, of this, but even dating back to pure concentration practices of ancient India, even when, you know, a lot of these schools were just, they weren't based upon uh, enlightenment or insight, um, some of them are based upon the cities, the, the supernatural powers, which a lot of people think about when they think about meditation. There's certain things that can arise um, when we just have a focused con and, and concentrated mind. This gives rise to, um, yeah, like, like powers, like clairvoyance and levitation and, you know, all, all, all of these things. Uh, and again, doesn't really release us from suffering. But even in those schools, there was a, a big emphasis on moment-to-moment -moment awareness. They knew that if we didn't gather up the, the mind chitta, you know, the, the mind stuff, if we didn't gather that up throughout the day, if we didn't pay attention to what's happening throughout the day, moment-to-moment, -moment, we would never be able to really access um, concentration during during meditation. So this is extremely important that we understand that we need to wrangle in the mind moment to moment and everyday mindfulness. So this is what we learn about mindfulness 101, washing the dishes, know that you're washing the dishes, doing the laundry, know that you're doing the laundry, you know, walking, know that you're walking, eating, know that you're, you're eating, listening, know that you're listening, right? So this, this collects the mind. 
and it's a habit. It's a habit of wrangling the mind back in, coming back into to paying attention. So informal practice is very, very good for the concentration piece. Not necessarily, it's, it is good, not necessarily for the insight piece. So a lot of times I get people who are chatting to me about their practice and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm really good about, mo about daily mindfulness, but I don't really have a good sitting practice, you know, or I have a really good sitting practice, but, you know, I need to work on once my butt leaves a cushion, when I'm at work, I get really busy or blah, blah, blah. Informal practice is really good for the, for the insights. Right, because we're we're with them, we're with whatever we're looking at. We're with it longer. We're not distracted. We can gain insight into the nature of things because we're with them in a more concentrated way, in a more with longer duration, um, more stillness, more openness. We could really surrender too, because when we're out and about, we might be paying attention to the objects, but again, we're not really paying attention to the knower those objects. We're not getting down to the the real root of things, right? So the informal, informal practice, really good for concentration, really helps our formal practice. We can't let go of either one, right? So when we go and sit and have formal practice, this gives rise to um, insight. Right? So insight, very, very important to keep that formal practice going so we can really look deeply at one certain thing. Uh, just one little quick note too about that informal practice a lot of it's a lot of jumping around that's another reason why it doesn't lend itself to insight so much because we're, we're jumping around a lot we're paying attention but you know that might be shifting and changing because it's very dynamic where in our sitting practice we really want to go deep you know obviously there's some practitioners that will stay on one object for 30 years right because they're getting down to the essence of that whatever object we're choosing, if we stay with it long enough, eventually it's gonna just turn into essence. So we could tie back anything into essence, right? So, um, yeah, I think I'll stop there for now and, and open it up. Um, any, yeah, any questions? maybe pertaining to your own practice with getting to the cushion, staying on the cushion, or maybe any clarifications between these two. Um, anything having to do with the techniques um, themselves? Yeah, any plateaus coming up for you? Ali, did you raise your hand? Uh, Rick. Thanks, Casey. Um, wanted to ask about your, you know, some of the things that have helped you to reach insights when you're doing your sustained sitting practice or whatever, uh, walking, whatever it is you're doing, but not short times, many times, but, uh, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts come up, obviously, just like everybody. I just, I'm not entirely sure what I'm supposed to be doing with them. Um, so there's, I heard like kind of two questions in there. That, that, that last little thing you said about what to do with the thoughts. Um, 
you know, Suzuki Roshi had just like a beautiful line there, which is thoughts are not a problem, but just don't do anything with them. Right. So, um, so in it with non-judgmental awareness, just letting those, let, let, letting those come and go. Um, and then the first part of the question, which was what is helpful, you know, to, to gain insight. What I found the most helpful is to really focus on impermanence. If we have impermanence, then the other two come quickly. So if we have impermanence, we recognize unsatisfactoriness, we understand dukkha. Um, and we're, because of impermanence, we will understand uh, this, the, the selfless nature of things. Because if something's changing, it can't be anything because it's changing, it's already gone. So somebody can't be, they're not a teenager. That's a, that's a stage that they're in, but they're changing, right? That's not who they are. So so-and-so, my, my niece is a teenager. Well, that's the stage that she's in, but that's not her essence, right? Because she's impermanent. So if we really focus for a concentrated amount of time on impermanence, and this is, could be with any of your objects that you're, that you're noticing, it could be when you're walking, noticing impermanence of, of the sensation, the movement, also notice the impermanence of those thoughts that are arising. If you notice those thoughts are arising, you're the knower of those thoughts and you notice they're coming and going. So notice that they're impermanent. You could also do an intellectual meditation on impermanence. You just focus on impermanence. Has anything I've ever known, has it ever stayed the same? Where the city that I was raised in, the people that I've known, my own body, countries, um, mountains, <laughs> anything. So you could also do an analytical meditation on impermanence. So focus on that. You could focus on impermanence for a whole month on your whole practice. So it's, and again, when we were talking about the difference between these two, it's the goal, right? So it's the intention. So you could bring forth the intention to understand the impermanent nature of things um, more explicitly. I don't, I guess my question is, is more about, so, I mean, there's no insight related to what arises. I mean, in terms, other than that it's impermanent. I mean, because, I mean, you're, you're talking about sitting and gaining insight and I, I, I feel like I'm already pretty connected with that impermanence mm -hmm. and um, clinging and all the other things that seem to cause suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, so the thoughts are just, I mean, thoughts, I mean, I mean, I'm not sure what, I mean, when I think insight, think insight, I think, what do I get from these thoughts other than that they're impermanent? Um, impermanent and, and empty yeah. and unsatisfactory. Mm -hmm. So like an insight doesn't come from any addition. Maybe if that's what I'm getting at, are you trying to gain, there's no epiphany, there's a negation. So there's no insight, there's nothing's coming to us that's insightful, like a, like a, like a, a phrase or a word or like none of the, the, the only, the only insight we get from any thought is that it's, it, it's non-substantial, hmm. that it actually has no meaning whatsoever. 
There's no, there, it, there's literally no intellectual insight. Hmm. Nothing. We could throw the entire mind away. Right. So if we're looking, if I don't know if that's where you're headed, like, is there any insights from thoughts? No, not a single insight from a thought. I just thought if there was some sort of continuous arising or something like that, you know, type of situation or whatever. Um, but okay. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So I had a hand up, but one second, I have a virtual hand up from Lisa that I want to just connect to first. And I see Dawn and is it Julie? So, um, I was going to ask something else, but um, I was sparked by something Rick said. So if you say there's no insight, there's no, uh, but you are saying to sit with the intention to understand impermanence. I said, there's no, there's no insight from, from thought. Okay. From, what does from... it look like to, to have the intention to understand impermanence when you sit, like you just state that intention to yourself and then sit and empty your mind. Yeah, just just watching phenomena. So you could set the intention to pay attention, you know, to recognize impermanence, but just watch phenomena arise, abide, and then drift away. Okay. So, and it's not really about emptying, you don't have to worry about the mind being empty. Um, you're just simply watching that, that calming piece, that emptying, the emptying of the mind um, and, and that way will come naturally just by tending to what is, but noticing everything coming and going very in a very particular way, just watching it rise, watching it go, watching the moment that it leaves, watching the next thing arise, watching it go. So, you know, usually we're, we're not even with what is. This would be obvious if we paid attention to what's real. But since we're always in our mind, we can't see the most basic nature of things. Right? We can't, we don't, we can't notice that impermanence happening all the time. Because we're just literally not paying attention to what's happening. We're stuck in our heads. Like even the simple fact that I'm, I'm sitting now, but I'm going to get up. I don't even notice getting up, right? Because as soon as I get up, I'm already thinking about getting a glass of water. I I missed I just missed out on that, right? Thank you. Uh, who was next here? I did. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. Mm -hmm. Um, related to to Rick's comment, when I've been in different sanghas, I think sometimes there's a confusion or there's um, a question about the insight that can occur in the pasana meditation practice and insights that are psychological insights. And so I'm a psychotherapist and I think that sometimes there's some confusion between what are the insights that could come from psychological examination in, in therapy and what are the insights that could come from Vipassana meditation? And they're, they're, they're different as far as I'm, as far as I know, and it's a different type of insight. And so the insight with Vipassana I've understood is the insight to the true nature of things, the true nature of reality, which is the unsatisfactoriness, the impermanence and the non-self to what arises 
and that whatever arises to examine our greed, hatred, and delusion to those things. And that that's where we can examine a deeper insight as to where our greed, hatred, and delusion is um, activated um, in these insights. So that's, I just wanted to make a, a statement about that and curious about your, your thoughts about that as well. Yeah, I, I think the major, you know, difference is, is the experiential aspect, you know, um, in other words, that we're not trying to gain any insight from the intellect. So even though that we could even do an analytical meditation, so like even in like Tibetan Buddhism, where we're doing a, an analytical meditation on impermanence, where we're using the thinking mind to pay attention to impermanence, like I mentioned, you, know, you could even think about your hometown and all of these things about anything as being impermanent. You're actually using the intellect to initiate the meditation. But the, the, the insight part is actually experiential, is actually something beyond mind that even impermanence, we're not trying to understand impermanence on a conceptual way of like, oh, things drift away. Actually, impermanence is is almost like an enlightenment experience. You know, it's like really awakening to the true nature of things. So there could be an, an insight in this way where you're like, oh my gosh, everything's impermanent. It's like, it, it's, it's much different than just a contemplation. And, and we see this even with relative and ultimate bodhicitta, for example, of like, there's a big difference between, you know, wishing for all others, you know, all beings to be happy. Then there's the actual experience of interconnectedness where we really feel connected to all beings and this service and compassion and loving kindness arise as a natural way of being. So this is, this is the point where there's no, you know, there's no insight, there's no insight of a thought. Um, this is a much more of a spiritual occurrence, you know, this, this type of insight that we're looking for, but the, the initiation of that investigation can come from a more philosophical um, aspect and, and then lead into an experiential understanding. Thank you. I wanted to, Julie, I thought that was a really, thank you for that, that differentiation as well. So, okay, you answered the first part of my question, which was the idea of going into the meditation with an intention, which feels a little bit thought-based to me versus the experience of impermanence. So I think um, so when I think about meditation as and the insights that come as being rooted in an embodied experiential insight, yes, like a then I'm grappling with, well, do you set an intention to experience something which feels a, a little more cognitive to me? Or are you sort of just trusting? Is it that you already know the truth, like you were saying conceptually of anatta, of anicca, you know, of, of the, all of these foundational truths and you're holding them do you get you see where I'm getting what I'm getting at? Like, and then there's a bigger question I want to ask. I think I think so. Um, and I think the intention aspect is 
you know, it, it's fairly, you know, it's an interesting one. So it's, you know, I don't know if it's on the, I'm going to call it like religious, but it's definitely kind of a little bit invisible, mm. um, you know, where, you know, we set this intention and then we let go of it. You know, yeah. like, I set the intention, may I, I attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Like that's why right. I'm doing this. And then, mm. and then we, for, then we forget about it, you know, because we, yeah. you know, it's like, Zakilu Rinpoche talking about he's like you know if you set the right intention powerful enough it literally in his opinion it's like it doesn't matter what practice you, you do he said you could just say omani pemiums but if you set a strong enough intention it's going to carry you to that destination uh, to the power of intention now that's something that's quite invisible and maybe something that we need to to really you know practice ourselves and just see kind of how that intention manifests for us. Uh, but I think regardless, what is true is that we do, we, we do let go of that. Um, we do let go of that when we're practicing. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's not something that we need to you know, carry with us throughout the, the meditation itself. I thought of that as a lovely story that you've told about the raft and that we own, right? carry the you only need the raft to get across the river and then yeah have, yeah i think you've, you've told that i'm sure yeah, across the river of samsara you know like the the yeah the whole path like all the teachings are like the raft across the river of samsara but when we get to the other side we need to kick the raft away and mm -hmm. and land on the other side you know which means abandonment of the intellectual teachings is that phrase you know kill the buddha you know it's like yeah, we have to to really just move into pure experience. Mm. I'll let somebody else go. If no one else wants to go, I did have another question, but I'm I'm gonna hold that for a while. Okay. So the question is: insight, meditation, and stability of mind practice versus complete open awareness to the passing, the constant flow of phenomena, the hearing, the listening, the, right? So are these mutually exclusive? Sometimes in my practice now, I feel like I'm sort of shifting in and out of both of those so that sometimes I start with much more of a concentration. I'm following my breath and then it sort of naturally goes to more of a, I'm just experience every, everything that comes and goes. Is it more beneficial to be like, oh, this is the shamatha practice. I'm doing shamatha practice or, or doing the other practice. And I don't know if there's a clear cut answer to that, but I guess I'm curious. I'm curious about what you feel and other people's experiences about that. Yeah, so, so technically, because you're choosing the breath, so the breath can, can be straight away a Vipassana practice. And of course you're building up your shamatha, you're building up your concentration, right? As you're, as you're doing that. Um, if, you, if you chose like a, something like a visualization, then it wouldn't be a Vipassana practice right because you're it's something artificial it's not it's not a, it's not a thing so you can't see the true nature of a thing 
because it's artificial, like if you're doing a mantra or something. But if you're choosing the breath, for example, then you're, it's, a, it's a naturally occurring thing. So you can see the nature of it. And then when you move into open awareness, so now you're, you're really maybe just minding the mind, right? And, and the, you're awareing and the phenomena that's arising within the mind, abiding the mind and drifting back into the mind, right? And so there's wonderful discussions, you know, in texts now, because you know, this, is, this is an emphasis in the Tibetan Mahayana tradition um, and Vajrayana tradition to mind the mind like this. So more the Dzogchen text and Rigpa, which is resting in that awake mind. But you know, that's, a, that's a Vipassana meditation. And so there's wonderful you know, discussions now from that, you know, the, there's so many Theravada monks and whatnot that have studied with Tibet masters and, um, and, and there's Theravada traditions too, but it's just basically yeah, minding the mind and really getting in touch. Like you mentioned that, that knower, like Ajahn Chah would talk about this. And um, you know, he talks about it, a beautiful experience with his teacher when he really pointed out that there's, there's that knower, like I'm breathing in. I know that I'm breathing in, breathing out. I know that I'm breathing out where the, the first instruction is about paying attention to what do you find that object, right? Of the breath itself. And then we could turn and say, Oh, well, why don't I investigate and uncover and be with and have sustained attention towards the knower of the breath, right? And, and eventually we'll see that by paying attention to the breath, the mind is calm and at ease. And then we don't need to pay attention to the breath anymore. The mind is stable and being present with itself, right? And so uh, I think naturally we arrive in that place where we're just there and awake. Uh, but yeah, I, and and we're gaining insight into that because even that and that's a really good time to practice you know i-ness <laughs> you know that that is empty too like that that state is empty so a lot of times we'll, we'll try to impute a small little eye on top of that <laughs> you know but we investigate that that too is non-substantial Just by just by investigating, and it doesn't have to be, you know, conceptual, but just by investigating. Yeah. Thanks, Casey, and thanks everybody for such a great, you know, discussion and exchange. Um, I just have a question, you know, some guidance about what are the signs that you know um, concentration practices. Uh, becoming too, uh, that I'm clinging to it too much. I remember one time you gave a talk where you reminded us that we could um, build that muscle for stabilization by doing like a on-off meditation where it's like three minutes looking at an object and then a minute off and three minutes looking. And you said, you know, don't forget that that's in your toolbox also to sort of build that muscle and whatnot. Um, and so I try to add that in periodically um, to my practice. But when what what are the road signs that you know that is um, that I'm sort of going too aggressively down that road or getting too clingy to my to my concentration? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I would just say that you want to balance the two out, you know, as far as duration of time. 
like you want to do some some meditations that are just you know simply you know more in investigatory um without the um, or I would say at least on objects that that are innate and not artificial. Um, but concentration is actually very, very difficult. So I, I don't think that we're going to have an opportunity in our in our culture. Um, and, I, and I'm not saying that you don't have an amazing focused mind. I just um, the level the levels of concentration, they're they're really difficult to attain. You know, I've told stories of you know having, monk friends that have done one year shamatha retreats and got to stage like three and then they just were doing it full time. Um, it's, uh, it, it's really difficult to, to overdo because man, cause the mind is so distracted, but as we do want those opportunities for insights to occur. So I would pick, you know, some objects, you know, to, to also investigate that are just naturally occurring objects. Yeah. Um, Can I ask a follow up? Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I I don't see myself at tremendous risk of getting too concentrated, <laughs> but I guess in our sort of lay practice, I can be avoiding things by sitting on the cushion and pouring myself into a practice and not taking on insight and not you know like you said you get to balance both. But that's more my fear is like through real difficulty, not being with what's happening, mm -hmm. but still sitting on the cushion and telling myself that mm -hmm. I'm doing it, you know, that I'm doing practice because I, I, I'm getting really into picking a thing and, 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 you know, emptying my mind of thoughts by focusing on an object or a mantra or something, mm -hmm. but I am, it's like bypass. I'm actually avoiding, mm -hmm. I guess that's more what I would fear. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great, yeah, great, great question. And, and that's a perfect example of why we want to, to actually practice this being with what is as it is. And one thing that we just could use for self awareness there is that there's this whole thing with, like, when you first describe meditation to somebody, or I should say mindfulness, paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non judgmentally, when you get to that non judgmental part, it's really close to becoming like, nihilistic you know like do i just numb out you know what is this spiritual bypassing and so when things are arising even in our concentration practice you know when we're sitting with disturbances or you know things that are more chronic you know we have to have the self-awareness to to pay attention to those things and allow them eventually if possible to either become the object or seek you know therapeutic support for those things so it's another thing too like if if something's too hard for us to handle and we do want to go into you know more like spiritual bypassing you know maybe mindfulness and meditation is is really not we're not holding it's it's not um we're not kind of there yet to hold it in non-judgmental awareness so we could seek outside support you know for that therapeutic support um and then come back to that when we could hold it in a in a more non-judgmental way and have the that self-awareness of where that line might be yeah your um kate's question kind of brought up my what i was asking about i guess um it's just the area that i'm <laughs> I, I just doesn't feel like i i make much 
um, headway in concentration. Um, but I keep coming back. I mean, I just keep going back to what I'm doing, what I'm focusing on. And I guess am I bypassing by, you know, just going into awareness, awareness and being okay with that? <laughs> No, that's that's totally fine. I mean, I, I used to have to pay attention when you go about the, the bypassing piece is that what we're letting go of, you know, thoughts are coming and going and we're letting them come and go. You know, if um, if those are harmless and they're not tied to like really intense situations and, and all those things, you know, we could feel totally good about letting those come and go. Um, but then, yeah, if we do need to pay attention to those, that those need to be addressed, then we can we can move into that. It is not, however, bypassing just to resting in awareness. And if you want to move from like, from breath meditation, body meditation to um, awareness meditation, that's, that's not, you're not bypassing just by choosing that as a technique. Um, but if there's underlying currents of things like emotional things that we need to, to work with and whatnot, uh, we want to pay attention to that. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like the concentration component is, um, I don't know, maybe it is developing, but it doesn't feel like it. So. Yeah. yeah, and then that would be a good one to do. And, you know, I could type it back in or, or text me, but that 3-1 meditation of three minutes on an external fixed object with full focus, three minutes, external fixed object, eyes open, one minute off, three minutes on, one minute off, three minutes on, one minute off. Like this is a really good, it's a sprint, you know, it's just like external fixed, fixed object. Remember when you have an external fixed object, the mind is racing, but that is not, right? That's not moving. As soon as we move internally with the breath is moving and the mind is moving, then there's two things moving <laughs> and it's hard to focus. So if you want to go back to like really just focusing on concentration piece, that external fixed object could be a little Buddha or, or anything, candle, whatever. And and you'll you'll really see it's really it's a good way to quantify your practice because you will definitely notice your stability getting better in those short little intervals. So you can do that a few times a week, you know. Really good practice. Yeah. Set your timer for three minutes and then just rest for what you think is one minute and then hit your timer again, just to get to use your phone. Thanks, Casey. Um, so I kind of don't know what my question is, except that you sort of hit on something when you were just talking about um, numbing out. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for me, like even this conversation that we're having this morning is making me want to eat. And so it's telling me that I'm like, there's, I just, I can't quite take it all in. And it's a little bit uh, too much for me. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel that way. Um, so with just my own meditation practice, like I notice, um, I don't think I can be as erudite in explaining this, but like thoughts will arise and, you know, I'm successful in sort of letting them go, but sometimes Sometimes in my meditation practice, I have to ask myself if I'm willing to let this thought go um, in order to let the thought go. So it almost seems like I'm using my mind to control my mind or something. It's a weird thing. And then, um, and then sometimes I notice in my meditation practice, 
um, it does become too much and I do sort of numb out. So I, I was appreciating what you were just saying to Rick about the three minutes, because maybe I need to sort of go back and kind of do something a little bit differently. I, I'm not exactly sure what. Mm. Thank you, thank you. Um, you know, I think it's important to know, to know and be totally okay with our, our limits. You know, like I was saying, like if you're going towards like numbing out or, you know, things are a little bit hard to handle, you know, maybe move towards a loving kindness practice, maybe move towards a walking meditation. And, and maybe most importantly is to tune in, like you mentioned that wanting to eat, you know, or this numbing out paid attention to that moment. Like what, what is that? Maybe not so much with immediately going to the mind either, like pay attention to the body, feeling tones, maybe not exactly paying attention to an intellectual why, but really coming into an experience and paying attention. Maybe that's coming up. Like when you pay attention to the body, a lot of times those things come up in daily life. You know, usually what we see in, in meditation is a manifestation of something that's subtly happening quite a bit. And it's happening in other aspects of our life. So you really want to pay attention to that moment and really sit with it in kind of its totality and see if that's coming up in, in different aspects and really use your wisdom there to choose what is the best antidote there. Again, it could be something outside of turning inward. It could be reaching out to a friend or you know, connecting in, in, in other ways. Uh, it could be a different style of practice. Because remember, we're asking so much of ourselves to sit with what is. This is extremely difficult, right? This is super high-end practice. There's going to be things that we can sit with. And there's things that we can't sit with yet, right? Those might need something external. So we're just using that wisdom. Yeah. Um, I just really fast wanted to recommend on the Insight Timer app that they allow you to set interval bells. So you could set a meditation program for the three minutes, the one minute, the three minutes, the one minute. Oh, very cool. A different sound for the beginning of the three minutes and the end of the three minutes. That's how I kept myself on track and didn't give up while trying to do the three, one, three, one, three, one. That's all. awesome. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah, I just go had ahead. A quick question. I just sure. had a quick question about the three, one, three, one. So you're three minutes on an object and then one minute, is that like eyes closed, just inward sort of deal? Or is that like, I don't, I'm. Great question. Great question. Yeah. Usually we just kind of open awareness. So you're still, you're still attentive, you know, you're still alert and attentive. But we go from, let's say, more narrow, if I'm focusing on this bowl, you know, so you're really narrow and we're not analyzing the bowl. We're just laying our attention there. And then you just kind of open that attention up. So just kind of resting in your beingness. So you don't let the mind necessarily go into really thinking, but it's, it's nice and open. So you give that a really expansive feel and then coming back narrow. Okay. And Thank again. you. Yeah, for sure. Great question. Okay. Um. You had mentioned knowing something and knowing that you you know it. I'm breathing and I know I, I'm knowing it. Um, you know, in Zen, that's considered another object that arises, exists for a time and disappears. The, the, the watcher is just another object. 
to be let go of. Um, and it's almost like you're, you're cleaning a mirror and every internal and external object appears before the mirror and you just become aware of it and you let it go. Um, and then you realize that, you know, apparently enlightenment is realizing that whatever it is you're observing there, it's non-dual. It's, you're not looking at the ocean, you are the ocean. You're not looking at another person. You are simultaneously yourself and that, that person. Um, and then just a comment in a lot of Mahayana practices, there, there doesn't seem to be any focus on insight. Uh, insight seems to, to be a natural result of paying attention to what's going on in the, in the moment. Um, but I, you know, I used to read a lot of Vipassana and they used to, to talk about there's a big difference between concentration meditation and insight meditation. But most of the techniques that are used in, in Zen and Pure Land Buddhism and, and all the other Mahayana practices, uh, you know, like a mantra or a koan or a wadu or kido, all of those things are focusing the mind, concentrating the mind and letting go of the contents, just relinquishing whatever arises. Um, what are your thoughts about about that? Yeah, yeah, you know, great, great topics. Um, you know, the the Buddha taught it intertwined. Um, they, you know, he taught him as one. And I think what we see is with the difference with the different practices, uh, with the different traditions, I should say, is emphasis. You know, like to Theravada, even like you know, post Buddha, they they really extracted those two out to really understand these two components of the meditation. And, you know, in, in the kind of the analysis um, part of the teachings, so you're right, like when Buddha taught this, um, Buddha taught them together. And so in like Mahayana, in, in Tibetan, they still have Vipassana, like they'll, it's a little bit different. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more, um, uh, investigative, I should say. There's more prompts, if you will. Uh, but for the most part, you're right in that the shamatha practices are going to lend itself eventually to that. But there's also a good distinction that in the like Hindu philosophies, there is no there's no vipassana at all. And and in in Buddha's experience, at least, that did not. You know, he tried. You know, for six years, he tried in those in those practices to attain enlightenment and then it never worked for him, you know? So he had only those, those, those concentration practices. And he's like, you know, I didn't really get to learn about the nature of suffering and this and that. So there is something to it, at least intentionally, even when we start doing the shamatha practice that we're getting there to, we're getting to know the true nature of reality, even though, yes, there's these concentration practices, even in the Mahayana traditions, like, that have both. They have resting on the true nature of mind, for example, in Tibetan, and they have the mantra practices, like Omani Pemiyoms, and there's some people that just do one or the other, and they all get to the same goal, you know. Um, but there is there's this thing that we do want to see the true nature of things. At some point, I think you do need to look at the true nature of mind. You need to stop the concentration on an object and look at 
the the knower the object and like you mentioned that is a stepping stone we use those words like the watcher the neutral observer the knower those things ultimately don't exist we do need to let that fall away too but like everything else we kind of use halfway to emptiness <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, we we use them as these stepping stones like and then to to, to eventually fall off yeah um so i want to respect everyone's time um well thank you all so much i hope that was more clarifying than than confusing but <laughs> um wonderful i could do this literally we could chat all day and hear more from your experiences too which if we had another hour or so we'd love to hear um for more on that end but yeah let's just um dedicate the merit so allowing the eyes to close for a moment remembering how precious and rare this opportunity is to be able to sit and to discuss these things and thank each other for showing up this morning to make this commitment we have so many different choices and we made this choice to sit together so beautiful so profound and I'm just, you know, thinking of the lineages, all these people, all these beings, uh, the men and the women, the monastics that have given up so much and to kept these lineages alive, just to honor them in this moment. And to your own teachers and the teachings that have helped you. And with great sincerity in our hearts, wishing that all beings have this opportunity to hear such teachings and most importantly have the motivation to turn inward have the environment that supports them to actually look for themselves and find liberation from suffering may all beings everywhere with that exception may they all be happy they all be free from suffering. Om Mani Padme Om. Just listen to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.